0: sermons together. And I take a look we're going to do James, for example. We decided that back before Christmas. We're going to do James. So I take a look at the scripture verses and based on what the topic is and the paragraph headings, we kind of break it up. So I've really got, I know what we're going to be teaching on all the way into June and July. And I rarely ever change the topics because the name is the name. I mean, if we're talking about pride, you talk about pride. If you talk about sin, you talk about sin. Well, the message today was going to be about pride. But it starts off and it says, where do wars come from? And I said, oh, my goodness. Let's, I mean, there's a war going on. I mean, if you've been watching TV, if you've been seeing what's been going on, it's been, it's been disastrous. So I, want to make sure, I wanted to make sure that we follow the Lord's um, leading. And the Lord led me to basically say today, the topic for today's message is where do wars come from? Where do wars come from? And you're going to see that we're actually beginning chapter 4, but in many ways we're continuing what the message was last week. Because if you remember last week, we talked about two sources of wisdom. One was heavenly, one was from God, but the other was earthy. It was sensual, it was demonic. And we're going to, James is going to continue that theme today because he's going to say these, these sources of wisdom... The sources of your inclinations, whether they're heavenly or they're sensual, is going to affect everything. And he's going to say that's exactly where wars and rumors of war comes from. So again, my topic today is where do wars come from? And we're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It's in your bulletin, but I'm also going to put it up on the screen. So let's begin reading by, with James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. James says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives grace, he gives more grace, therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So it's an interesting passage. And as I said, as we start off, we realize we're picking up where we left off last week. We talked about worldly, sensual, demonic sources of wisdom. And we find that when that's our inclination, where that's where we follow, uh, it doesn't turn out well. It doesn't turn out well for us at all. Now, James is pulling no punches. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? And it comes from our desires for pleasure. He's using a literary term here, it says that he, it wars against our members, but it, like when you're writing a poem, sometimes when you're looking for a rhyme, you just use the word itself, and that's what he's doing. He's using the word twice for emphasis. He's using the word war twice, but you'll see that he's not talking about an internal struggle at all. This is an external struggle. This is exactly why we have wars. This is exactly why we have fights. This is why we have violence in the world. It's because of who we're following and who our leaders are following. And James is not just talking about some of the things that, that we desire that may be okay. You know, he says, he says um, the things that we, the, the, the internal struggles are the things that we war within us. It talks about our pride, the things that we covet, the things that we desire. But then he says, no, you lust and do not have. You lust. And that word lust is not used um, in, in a sheepish way. I mean, it's not just basically those things that you wish you had. It's not like a desire for french fries with your hamburger or a, a new iPhone. Um, no, lust is always, in the Bible, a forbidden craving. It's something that you're not supposed to have. It's not supposed to lust after. The Bible speaks of lust in the Ten Commandments, for example. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that your neighbor owns. That's, that's lust, and it's, it's forbidden. Lust is a focus on oneself. It's what can I have? What can I get for myself? It's unwholesome. And actually, when you think about it, it's the complete opposite of the Christian life and the Christian lifestyle. Instead of a selfless life like Christ showed us, it's a selfish life where we try to get things for ourselves so we can spend it on our own desires. Again, it's, it's sensual. It's for our senses. It, it satisfies temporarily, but it doesn't have a lasting effect. And James just doesn't stop at lust. He's just, he's just getting started. James says, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You know, this is an interesting progression that James is taking. He's taking us down this path. And it's interesting because he's saying basically, hey, it's not about the effort. You put a lot of effort into it, but if you start off wrong, it's not going to end well. You know, all too often in this world and those that are not following the foundational principles of the Christian life and not living selfless lives, You live selfish lives. You foul after your own desires. It's passion. It's passion for power, for for lust, for the the pleasures of the world. And at the end, are we ever satisfied? James says no. James says all of these efforts still don't satisfy. He says you murder and covet and cannot obtain, even when these actions lead to armed struggles, even when wars are fought over the passions of the flesh. They they never end well. They they never end well. They end up in vain. Let's just talk history for a minute. If you remember a few weeks ago, I I talked a little bit about one of my favorite people from World War II. I'm gonna go back a little bit further, a little bit further, all the way back to the Civil War. Uh, There's a union general that um, is a very famous general. Uh, You probably know him. His name is General William Tecumseh Sherman. You may not know the full name, but you know Sherman's March to the Sea. Sherman was a Union general, and he believed in all total warfare. He, he knew that he felt that the South, the Confederacy, was in rebellion to the Union, and we needed to understand that rebellion led to disaster. So he decided in total warfare. It was not just about soldier against soldier. It was against people. It was against the Union, against those people that were in rebellion, so he had Sherman's march to the sea. After he had destroyed the Confederate Army in Atlanta, Georgia, he burned the city and then burned everything between Atlanta, Georgia, all the way marching to Savannah, Georgia. He burned it all. Now, he was also known for being extremely generous because when people were no longer in rebellion, he was, he was generous to a fault. He was very generous to people that would surrender, to the troops that surrendered. General Sherman is also quoted by saying this. He says, I am tired and sick of war. Its glory is all moonshine. It's only those who have neither fired a shot nor heard the shrieks and groans of the wounded who cry aloud for blood, of vengeance, for desolation. Then he says, war is hell. War is hell. And for those of you that have served in the military, Those of you that have sent your sons or your daughters, you can understand war is hell. That's what we see on the nightly news. When we see the people of Ukraine, we're going to pray, by the way, at the end. We'll pray again for the people of the Ukraine. And when we pray, we don't pray for victory, nor do we pray for surrender. We pray for God's peace, that God would somehow be able to give the people there the peace that passes understanding, knowing that God has a plan somehow in this. And we just pray, especially for our Christian brothers and sisters, we pray for peace. So let's go on. James tells us something very interesting. And then at the end of verse 2 and continuing to verse 3, James writes this. He says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Well, when we, when we started James, we said, you know, this is going to sound a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. And here's a, a perfect example. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. You see, that's not the only place that Jesus tells us that prayer answers. Prayer is answered. You pray, God answers. Jesus says in John 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In a couple chapters later, in John 16, Jesus says, until now you've, not asked nothing, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, however, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, before you think it's that easy, remember what James is saying. James is saying we ask amiss. And this is exactly what Jesus has told us as well, as well as the New Testament. In 1 John, for example, the Apostle John says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything, According to his will, he hears us. In Matthew 21, Jesus says you have to have faith, ask in faith. James is saying a similar thing. James says we ask and do not receive because we ask amiss, that we may spend it on our pleasures. Again, here's that sentiment that it's about about us. It's about our selfish sentiment, our selfish desires that causes that. I've already taken you to the Civil War. I'm going to take you back a a few more thousand years. We've been going through the the Bible in our Bible project on Wednesday. If you haven't joined us, you're still welcome to because we cover a new book of the Bible every week, which is amazing when you think about it that we go through an entire book of the Bible. But we go through the highlights, just the characters, the development, the major themes. Just last week, we went through Ruth. We're going to be getting into the time of the Kings. And we're gonna go back about 3,700 years ago. 3,700 years ago, there was, actually 2,700 years ago, um, there was a story about one of the best kings of Judah, and his name was Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a great king. There was a number of bad kings in Judah, horrible kings in Israel, which was the 10 northern tribes, so bad that all of the prophets, the prophets Habakkuk and Jeremiah and Hosea, all told them that if they didn't stop their idolatry, if they didn't stop worshiping other gods, that God would bring in an enemy and that enemy would take them away into captivity. And the prophets warned them over and over again. And finally, Assyria came in and took the northern tribes of Israel captive. So the northern tribes fell and Judah was alone. Now they had King Hezekiah and King Hezekiah, again, was one of the greatest kings of Israel. In fact, he's so good that he's actually referenced in three different books of the Old Testament, in 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings and the book of Isaiah. There's this story that I'm going to tell you of Hezekiah. Hezekiah became king when his father Ahaz died, and Ahaz well, was not a good king, was not a good king. But Hezekiah came in and undid some of the things that his father did. And he came in he was very young. He was only 25 years old. But another thing happened, and that was Sennacherib. Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. After he had conquered Israel, turned his eyes towards Judah and to the city of Jerusalem and decided he was going to conquer Jerusalem as well. The Bible tells us that Hezekiah reinforced the defenses of the old city of David. He also built large stone, a large store of armaments. He had shields and spears. He appointed military officers. He did everything he possibly could to prepare for an all-out assault. And then he decided to rally his people and encourage them. And he said this, in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 7a, he says, Be strong and courageous. Sounds like, sounds like Joshua, doesn't it? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us to fight our battles. And the people took confidence in the words of King Hezekiah of Judah. So notice how he rallies his people. He basically says, there's more with us because we have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not talking about the armaments. He's not telling them that they can be successful because he's prepared them for war. He's not telling that they've got great military equipment or that the walls are tall enough and be able to to, to offset the enemy's attacks. He's telling them we have a great God. And because we have a great God, you need to be strong and you be courageous. Now, interesting, if you read the story, Sennacherib, um, is, 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 he's interesting. He's, he's very clever. So he finds people in his army that speak Hebrew. And he basically stations them just outside the wall, and they start calling out insults to the people of Israel. And they say, basically say, uh, you poor people, do you think you're safe in that so-called fortress of Jerusalem? You're, you're actually sitting ducks. Now, this is my translation. You're sitting ducks. Do you think Hezekiah will save you? Don't be stupid. Hezekiah is giving you nothing but a bunch of lies. But then they said this. Again, this was in Hebrew, t- speaking to the people. And they say this. And it was actually a letter that was delivered to the King Hezekiah as well. He says, Do you not know that I, this is Sennacherib, and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands, were the gods of their nations, of those lands, able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who among all the gods of those nations was able to deliver his people from my hand? That your God should be able to deliver you. Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion. Do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? It's quite a letter, isn't it? So he's, he's basically saying, now what's he doing? He's making a big mistake. Because he's not talking about the people. He's not talking about their armaments. He's not talking about the walls. He's calling out their god. He's basically saying, your God is no better than all the gods of these other places that I conquered. It's the same. Your your God is puny compared to what I can do and what my God can do. Well, he made a mistake because Elijah is there as well. And Elijah overhears this and Hezekiah hears this. And Hezekiah heard what the king had said and he tore his clothing and he went into the temple and he put ashes on his head and he clothed themselves in, in burlap and, and, uh, and, and, and torn clothes. And he prayed and King Hezekiah went into the house of the Lord and he prayed this and it's recorded in 2 Kings. He says, open your ears, God, and listen. Open your eyes and look. Look at the letter that Sennacherib has sent. A brazen insult to the living God. The facts are true, O God. The kings of Assyria have laid waste to countries and kingdoms. Huge bonfires they made of their gods. they are no gods handmade of wood and stone. Then he continues. He says, But now, O God, our God, save us from the raw Assyrian power. Make all the kingdoms of earth know that you are God, the one and only God. You know, what a prayer. He calls on God to be God. That's what he's doing. He's calling on God. He's saying, you know, what they're saying is actually true, but now they've come to the God of Israel. So God, we call on you to save us because your arm is stronger than their might. You are able to do it. So before we finish this story, let's remember what the reading from James said. James says that wars and fights come from our desires, our pleasure. It was the desire of Sennacherib to basically conquer and to be a conqueror, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to amass people and property and gold and silver. It was all about the king. These are wars and fights. They don't, we don't receive, James says, because we ask according to our selfish desires. Scripture says that we may spend it on our own pleasures, but that's not how Hezekiah is praying. That's not how Elijah prays. They're praying to God to be God. Let's see how God answers Hezekiah prayers. The scriptures tell us in 2 Chronicles, Isaiah, and 2 Kings that God answered the king's prayer. And the prophet Isaiah actually delivered the words of the Lord. In 2 Kings chapter 19, this is what the Lord says through Isaiah. Lord says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. He will not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, And he will not come before it with shield nor heap up an assault ramp against it. By the way that he came, the same he will return. And he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will protect this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the rest got up early in the morning, behold, all the 185,000... We're dead. One God, one angel against 185,000. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. Ask instead, ask the Lord to do what the, only the Lord can do. You know, scripture and history tell us that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, did exactly what Isaiah said he was going to do. He left Jerusalem by the same way, went right back to Assyria, and there his own sons killed him. His own sons killed him and while he was worshiping in front of his pagan god. James tells us, you murder and coven and cannot obtain. You fight and war, you do not have. And that's what, what can we say about Sennacherib and all the other warring kings, the heads of states, the military commanders. They war, but they cannot have what they ultimately desire. James is telling us actually more. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. The story of Hezekiah is a reminder Of the great power of prayer. You know, we have something that Hezekiah didn't have. He had to go to the temple to talk to God. We have the Holy Spirit living within us, giving us grace upon grace, giving us the mercy of God, allowing to be one with us so that we have that Spirit of God living on us. We can do anything that we need to do according to God's will. All we need to do is ask. But let's continue. James isn't finished. Verse 4 says this, he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that this scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? You know, this, this, this talk about these adulterers and adulteresses, James is reaching back into the words of the prophets because that's what, how God sees his people. When his people of Israel, when his people of Judah, when they worshiped other gods, when they fell away from the one true God and worshiped gods of stone and silver, and where they built calves or went up into the high mountains and worshiped other gods, God looked at it as adultery. You see, God has called us to be his own. God has brought us to himself, and he wants us to be faithful. In fact, the, the body of Christ is called the bride, the body of Christ is called the bride of the lamb. We're called the bride of Christ. That's how God looks at us, that we are, we are wed to him, and we need to be faithful, and we're, we're unfaithful. God looks at us that we are adulterers and adulteresses. James, re- refers to the, James then refers to the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. And James is actually referring to a number of Old Testament quotes that talks about how God is a, a jealous God, that God wants to be first place in our life. And again, this idea of being selfless is to allow God to live large in us. I'd much rather have God living in me, doing the things that God wants me to do. That's a, that's a true measure of success than trying to be selfish and come with my own desires, my own passions, to decide what I'm going to do for the day. James says, in closing, um, verse 6, and this is, this is a great verse to end with because James says this. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. You know, we've been talking about our selfish desires. Our selfish desires are based basically on our pride. We believe that we deserve the things that we ask for because of our own pride. And the, the soldiers, the military commanders, those that decide to fight in war, it's because of pride that allows them to do the things that they think they can do. Now, James says it's not going to end well. It's not going to end well. They're never going to get what they, what they truly want because they are never satisfied with what they have. But in this verse, we have the antidote to pride. And that, that antidote is humility. I rarely quote dead theologians, or alive ones for that matter. However, there's a guy named Charles Spurgeon who was a, probably the greatest preacher of the 19th century. He was a Baptist preacher, and he had a commentary on this particular verse. And this is what he says. He says, sin seeks to enter, grace shuts the door. Sin tries to get the mastery, but grace, which is stronger than sin, resists and will not permit it. Sin gets us down at times and puts its foot on our neck, but grace comes to the rescue. Sin can comes up like a Noah's flood, but grace rides over the tops of the mountains, just like Noah in the Ark. Isn't that wonderful? I love what James says about humility. God rewards our humility with grace upon grace. What a wonderful, it's a, grace, have you if you've got grace today? Grace, God gives you grace upon grace, for more grace. And that grace gives us humility, and humility is the antidote to pride. You know, the title of my message today was Where Do Wars Come From? And we find that the culprit is actually pride. And here we have the perfect antidote. The antidote, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is humility. The antidote for pride is humility. Scripture tells us God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. So Father God, we want to thank you today. We thank you, Lord, for... You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www faithdialogue.org